The Sparks Museum podcast is made possible by a grant from the Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities. The podcast is just one of many new features of the Sparks Heritage Museum. To learn more, check out our social media channels or our website at www.sparksmuseum.org. Hello, and welcome to the Sparks Museum podcast. I'm your host and the media manager for the Sparks Heritage Museum, Jessica Johnson. Today on the podcast, we welcome Sparks City Councilwoman Charlene Bybee, who leads a fascinating conversation about her long personal history with the city of Sparks, as well as the significance of women's participation in athletics with the passage of Title IX in 1972, and historic numbers of female legislators in the state of Nevada within the past three years. That said, let's welcome to the podcast, Charlene Bybee. Charlene. So I want you to tell us a bit about yourself and your personal connection with the city of Sparks. Hi there. So glad to be here today. Um, I'm excited. This is my first podcast. Oh, well, welcome. This is going to so, be so yeah, much fun. Very excited. Um, I am uh, Charlene Baby. I am city councilwoman Ward 4 and mayor pro tem or fake mayor. Uh, as our real mayor would say. Uh, and I've been eight years on the council. I'm, I grew up here in Sparks. I've lived in Sparks actually 58 out of my 68 years. Wow. So I grew up here. So talk about Sparks history. I, I'm like, I have a lot, long, long history, lots of memories growing up here. Uh, moved to the Bay Area for high school. Uh, because my dad was transferred and then came back here to the University of Nevada, Reno. And, um, you know, stayed stayed here, married a guy from Ely. So I consider myself almost native, but long, deep roots in the city of Sparks. Well, that is wonderful and such a long history in this local area. So what actually led or inspired you to become part of our local government? Oh, I know. I always get that question. You know, I could never be a politician. Why on earth would you want to run for political office? Uh, and it kind of was a journey uh, to get where I am. And I also remind people, um, I'm elected office in the city of Sparks, which is a whole different animal, if you will, <laughs> compared to national, you know, the national level, the state level, and other other jurisdictions, you know, Sparks, uh, Sparks is, is unique for sure. And I think really it stemmed from my involvement in the community. So throughout uh, my raising my boys, I was super active with um, schools, PTA, um, lots of volunteering. Yeah, my husband said I was a perpetual volunteer, uh, Junior League, United Way, Women's Athletics for the University, uh, just a whole lot of volunteer activities in the community. And, um, and I was working. Yeah, I was a working, working mom. Uh, I left that out. I was a flight attendant for American Airlines for 42 years. Wow. And only retired, um, It'll be three years in August, and someone was watching over me because I retired in August of 2019, and I was flying to Shanghai and Beijing, and I retired right before COVID arrived. Wow. So just my timing, my timing was perfect on that. Uh, my when my boys were really little, I flew part time six days a month, and then um, my husband was in the gaming industry, so we had like really 
crazy schedules that weren't traditional Monday through Friday, nine to five at all, raising our boys. Uh, but the airline uh, loved my airline career, and I actually continued to fly after I was elected to Spark City Council. So five years on the council, I was still flying international, and I would just fly two trips a month, so six days, uh, you know, three days to Shanghai, twice a month, or or London, or Sydney, wherever. Um, so I was still doing that, but I was I was ready to ready to stop. But I think because I was so involved in the community, and my boys, once they were out of the house, out of college, and um, I was still flying, but looking for what other maybe I was really looking for my next chapter. So what would be my next chapter? Because I knew. I wouldn't fly forever, although I flew longer than I thought I would. Uh, what was I interested in doing? How, how could I impact my community? And my community service uh, really had me looking a lot of different directions. Um, I looked at the state legislature, and I actually uh, was a lobbyist, a citizen lobbyist for two sessions, just exploring kind of what that what a lobby, citizen lobbyist would be unpaid, went on my days off to just check out what they were doing. Um, really looking, at, and I knew a lot of people. In, in, in Nevada, we all know, you know, we know our representatives, we know our congressmen, our, you know, U.S. senators, our governor. I mean, we know them personally most most of the time. So pretty small state and very connected. And, and I really was down there watching what they were doing, you know, with my money, because I'm a fiscal hawk, uh, we all work too hard for our money, and I really wanted to watch budget meetings and see where funding was going. Education was super important because of all my involvement with my boys and with education, knowing how critical it was. And so I uh, kind of explored that and then uh, decided I wanted to maybe pursue running for office and was looking at the legislature, and I had a good friend who... Um, Randy Thompson, who's done a lot of lobbying and is personal friend, she called me up and said, I hear you're looking at maybe running for office. I said, well, I'm exploring right now. And then she said to me, she goes, have you thought about city council? You know, the city councilman in your board is term limited, Mike Kerrigan. And have you thought about maybe running for Spark City Council? And I knew at that moment that was it. Uh, I've lived here my whole life. I raised my kids here. It's a nonpartisan office, which is my favorite part of not having to be beholden to either political party, really trying to make decisions that are best for our citizens. And um, I had always really contemplated why there weren't more women in politics in the city of Sparks. Very few electeds uh, and women in leadership in the city, and especially electeds. And, and my husband said to me in 2014 when I first ran, he said, Charlene, it's not that Sparks doesn't elect women. Women aren't running for office. Mm. And I said, you know what, you're right. We aren't. Of course, a lot of us are working moms. You know, we're doing the PTA. We're getting the kids to sports. So we're multitasking already. And women... We're not running. So Sparks wasn't not electing them. We just weren't running for office. And so as soon as I made that decision, I knew it was the right one and uh, wound up winning that election in 2014, was elected four years ago, and now I'm up for my final term because of term limits, mm. running for my, uh, my final term. Uh, I'll be on the ballot in November. Wow. Well, that's amazing. And, and on that vein, to think about the ways in which women throughout pretty much all of our history, it's not that we aren't there. It's that either there just isn't enough opportunities. We don't know about the opportunities made available to people like us. Um, 
And it is my understanding that, I mean, you were, you paid witness to a lot of this history during the days that Title IX was getting passed about women's athletics um, and the involvement of student athletes. Uh, could you speak to that and what your involvement was and what changes in the community that you, you witnessed? Absolutely. And it, it really, uh, and, and it's timely because uh, Title IX, June 23rd was the 50th anniversary Wow! Um, of Title IX being signed into law. So this week, you know, we are looking at that 50th anniversary. Uh, I was um, a gymnast in a private gymnastics club uh, in the Bay Area, Walnut Creek, and I competed for my high school team. My high school was really big, like 4,000 students, and we had uh, athletics for women that uh, a gymnastics team, so I competed both on the high school team and for a private club, and in 1972 graduated from high school as Title IX was passed. And my, my journey is interesting because I was going to stay, uh, stay in the Bay Area, go to St. Mary's College, live at home. I'm the oldest of six kids, six kids in eight years, so, uh, so really financially, you know, we weren't taking any big ticket uh, college tuition bills on my family. Uh, my dad did well, but big family. So uh, that was my plan. And the gymnastics coach up here at the University of Nevada, Dale Flances, called my coach with Diablo Gym Club and said, you know, what is Charlene doing? I know she's graduating from high school. And he said, well, she's staying down here. So she called and we talked. She goes, I'd really love you to come up to the university and compete on our team. I think you'd be a great fit. Uh, however, I don't have scholarships. I have no scholarships available. Uh, another gal on our private club team who's two years older had come to the University of Nevada and worked out really well with the team here. So, so Dale knew about me and knew, knew the Diablo Gym Club gymnasts at that time. And so uh, we talked about it, you know, how could we make that happen? Out-of-state tuition was just not doable, but yet we had lived, I had lived here until high school. So really until 1968, we lived in Sparks and then moved to the Bay Area for just four years. So we made a few calls and put, or applied for an in-state waiver uh, or an out-of-state waiver so I'd have in-state tuition and thank goodness was able to obtain that was the only reason I was able to come up here and, and compete mm -hmm. because there weren't you know there was not scholarship money available so I came up here uh, as a freshman competed all four years we went to collegiate nationals every year and um my senior year I'd had some knee injuries uh and so I was competing at just two out of four events and that my senior year 1975 that fall uh, we finally had I think two scholarships for gymnastics and the coach was looking at you know who had the greatest need she knew I had in-state tuition already uh, and she talked to me and I said no you need to give it to these other gals that are freshmen and sophomores they're younger I'm injured I'm in-state so uh, uh, but but I always appreciated the fact that she came to some of us who had been here uh, competing on the team with no scholarships. And uh, it was always one of those things. My husband, I met my husband at UNR, and he played football. So he's on a full scholarship. Right. And I'm competing uh, on a team representing the university, going all the way to nationals. And there were none. So really watching uh, 
being right there where his title line started, it wasn't the reality of, of money and funding coming to the women's sports. Uh, it took a while. It took a while. And um, I was just looking through, there's a, a great book that the university has through their oral history that I actually contrib- you know, was a contributor, and they, they talked to coaches and athletes about um, Title IX, women's athletics, kind of the history mm. at the university. And I always said, um, I said, you know, I was fortunate because I had the opportunity to compete. There were women older than, than I am who never had that opportunity, you know, to compete in high school, uh, in private clubs, but definitely high school and college, never even had an opportunity to compete. Uh, I did get to compete. I didn't have the funding uh, and scholarships to do it, and maybe the equipment and the financial support. But then women after me know, to see how, how much farther it has come and still uh, is, is, is exciting to see that. And then as I, as I read through, like today I'm looking through Title IX itself, and, and the funny thing is it really was not intended to be college athletics, but then that's kind of where the focus took it. So it was really Title IX was no discrimination, uh, cannot be discriminated about, you know, based on gender uh, for any um, institution uh, you, you know, college or institute, educational institution that receives federal funding. Mm. So as you read, as I read more about Title IX, it encompassed more than I had realized. It encompassed women who weren't getting into medical school. Um, admissions in some colleges that were limited to 30% women, period. You know, if you go back a ways. Um, medical schools, uh, you know, Ivy League schools, uh, that discrimination couldn't happen just based on the fact that it was a female uh, that was applying for that program or that college. Uh, and, and it really, everyone thinks it's only sports, but it wasn't at all. It was more all-encompassing than that. Related to that idea, the Sparks Museum is actually presently designing a portion of our high school exhibit in the gallery honoring some local alumni that have since gone on to become professional athletes, Uh, one of which we'd love to highlight is Gabby Williams of the WNBA's Los Angeles Sparks, which is very coincidentally named, seeing as she's from Sparks. Um, But in being an active part of this moment of Title IX's passage, and especially since it's turning 50 years old, there's so many people, I would say, in the latter generations that to think of a time pre-Title IX is almost unfathomable. And so were there changes that you noticed in our community because of the allowance of the participation of female athletes and, as you said, in other areas as well, this this idea of acting against discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, there are still many people who feel like there is still quite a ways to go to achieve equality. So have you noticed changes? Do you still see spots where changes still need to be enacted? Well, it's it, and it is ironic because when you look at today's athletes, especially, or even athletes, my boys are in their mid to late 30s. So even their generation, let alone kids in high school today, um, you know, myself and all the women that were pre-Title IX uh, are so much older that a lot of today's athletes don't have that perspective. And and I always thought that uh, uh, something I did get involved in at the university uh, was uh, an organization called Pack Paws, and it was um, it was promoting 
uh, women's athletics. It was it was a booster club for women's athletics uh, that was formed up at UNR, and um, ironically had like this very strong group. The majority of the women on it in the beginning were all female attorneys oh. here in the community, and they were former athletes. Um, Dr. Angie Taylor was the ath- was the women's athletic director when we were when we had formed this organization, and uh, really promoting. Uh, and the awareness and the support of of women in athletics and and the journey of how it had been. I remember Dixie May, who's very noted philanthropist in that family here, and Dixie and I spoke because she's older than me, and and she didn't have that opportunity to ever go beyond high school, and it was limited in high school. And and I always said, you know, I think I've I've always felt like I would like to be more of. Um, conversations with today's athletes, with going up to UNR and, and speaking. I, I said, I think our message to young women today of what we've accomplished in our lives, and a lot of it I felt for myself and then for my sons, had to do with uh, everything we learned in sports. It didn't matter how high you competed, what level, but really all the lessons, the life lessons that we taught our boys through Little League and through soccer and basketball and baseball, um, Really, those life lessons of uh, teamwork, of perseverance, of always giving 110% to everything you did. You applied to your job and you applied to relationships. And just that, uh, the discipline and the hard work, again, the work ethic that an athlete has to have, uh, how to be not just how to be a good loser, but sometimes how to be a good winner. You know, my oldest son was a tremendous athlete. So, really, uh, kind of how the, the, the life lessons that we, we, I learned and I was able to teach, I think our conversations with today's women athletes of the journey before them to kind of understand where we were because they don't have an idea. But then look at where we did, where each of us in our careers and our lives um, – how athletics shaped that. And so is there a young athlete in high school or college understanding that a lot of our successes were a direct result of being athletes and being female athletes and kind of what you can aspire to, which I think was amazing. And one statistic I picked up today I was shocked at. Since 1972, women's participation in women's athletics rose a thousand percent. Oh my gosh. From 300,000 to 3 million today of high school girls that are participating in sports. Like, huge. That's incredible. And so, and I saw, even with gymnastics, um, collegiate gymnastics in the 70s, I was at UNR 72 to 76, and came from a club team. And I was an advanced gymnast, but I wasn't an elite, like, Olympic athlete, for sure, but an advanced gymnast. And that's kind of where our level of competition was at that time. Well, as soon as after Title IX, as the scholarship started coming in the next um, several years, and sometimes as much as 10 years before schools were receiving uh, athletic scholarships, I noticed, because I obviously was focused on gymnastics, how many of the gymnastics teams around the country, the level of competition were the the elite gymnasts now weren't quitting gymnastics when they turned 18 and, and were focused on college. Their gymnastics could help them pay for college, and the level of competition is so much higher than I would have ever imagined, and it was because of that. It was because girls could get an education paid for. It just moved the bar, moved the bar all the way up, at least for my sport, but I think it did for others too. So you have really seen firsthand 
several aspects of time periods in your life where some pretty key moments of progress for women have come to fruition, um, both at the nation at large and in our community in particular. Um, Can you speak to the landmark number of female legislators in Nevada in 2019? Uh, I can't. I never, and I don't think most of us, would have ever ever even contemplated that Nevada would be the first state in the union to have a female majority in our state legislature. Mm. I mean, I would, California, New York, I mean, Illinois, I mean, other places, but Nevada? I mean, it really was just, I think, um, shocking for me to, even though I was, I've been an elected uh, since 2014, and and I know um, I know a lot of the legislators that are there, including Senator Julia Ratty, who served on the city council with me. My first two years, she was still a city councilwoman, and then went to the state senate. So um, so looking at the, how those numbers grew so much that, uh, in fact, I pulled up some info on it too because in 2019, we wound up uh, with 52 percent of our legislature was female, and the following session in 2021, it's 60%. It just continued to grow. So it continued to grow, and from 2011 to 2021, so in that 10-year time per, uh, period, um, it doubled. There were 18 women, and it, it more than doubled, 38 women in 2021. Uh, so it really is, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting to look at... Um, you know, through the years, uh, you know, the first session where a woman, a uh, female woman, had served in both houses of the legislature, you know, both the Assembly and the and the Senate was 1935. So that was still, that was a while ago. Yeah. You know, it really was. Um, and women in, in Nevada were first, first voted in 1916. And... In 1917, there were no women, and then we slowly added women to the legislature way back in those days. And uh, interesting uh, fact that I did not know, there's only one county who's never been represented by a woman, and that's Douglas County. Really? Yeah. Still to this day? Uh Uh-huh. That's incredible. I know. Yeah. (laughs) Which, yeah, yeah. so as I was just researching just some of the... Some of the stats, uh, you know, the longest serving uh, female in our legislature is Maggie Carlton from Clark County, 24 years, and she served in both houses. And I was I was down there lobbying when Maggie was there, so she was quite a formidable uh, legislator. Uh, she uh, also, for the city of Sparks, Bernice Matthews, who I consider... You know, a friend. I love Bernice. She was mm-hmm. from Reno, but her district covered Sparks as well. And she was 10 years in the legislature. And just, uh, she was the first African-American to head up some of the major committees and to hold the positions, you know, the positions in the legislature of, uh, I guess she was a uh, majority leader. But definitely she had a lot of firsts, uh, as well as being female and African-American and was just like one of the just so so such such an incredible, easygoing, very easy to work with, worked on. She, she's what I wish more more politicians today were that, that could all work together, that it wasn't such a partisan divide. And she was, uh, she's quite a pioneer with that. And then I knew Debbie Smith personally, who was our state senator, mm-hmm. um, who we unfortunately lost a few years ago. And Debbie and I met through PTA. She was um, the first parent um, 
the Washington County School District had a parent involvement coordinator that they created for someone to go out and tell the schools to get parents more involved when my kids were like, you know, just starting school. And I was PTA president up at Marvin Moss Elementary. And so I met Debbie and did PTA things with her and parent involvement, really forging away with parental involvement and education was her passion. Wow. I think that speaks so much to the really homegrown feel of Sparks. The fact that we have people that are so heavily involved in the local government that start from the ground up at trying to make a difference, even in some of the the lesser known aspects of our community, of even just trying to help out at school. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think I think that's what makes um, makes Sparks really special and and probably uh, unique. Is really it still feels like a small town. Uh, my husband's from Ely, and Ely is still, Ely is a small town, and there's a lot of really, really small towns in the state of Nevada. You know, as we look at rural Nevada, which is comprised of so much land and such small populations and has its own wonderful history and culture of rural Nevada, and Sparks uh, still feels small. We're up to 108,000 wow. uh, population. We had 19% growth in the last, uh, at the last census that we just completed uh, and, and redistrict. We didn't move lines much, but uh, with our growth, we're up to 108,000 people. And But we still were able to maintain that small town feel. And we did a few years ago, probably five years ago, did a uh, survey of the community, you know, that was, um, you know, that really looked at Ignite Sparks that asked the community for our strategic planning purposes what uh, what things people liked, what p- things people didn't like, what things they'd like to see happen in Sparks, and just get a real uh, survey of our residents, of our businesses, of our visitors. And it was um, it was about an eight month long process to gather data from around the community and the, and everyone inputting. And the number one thing people said is they. Um, they, they really liked it. They liked the small town feel to it. And they really were okay with growth, with, which I thought, <laughs> I thought they'd all be yelling at us because we're growing too fast. If you've been here a long time, that growth is, is a challenge and some people like it and some don't. But they really were not negative about the growth as long as we could maintain the feel of a small town. And I think you do that, you accomplish that in a lot of ways, but really um, the city itself, you know, the our city offices, our council, our mayor, our staff, when you come into City Hall, when you have um, business licenses or you come to one of our meetings or you get on a board or commission, it's, it's really feeling like it, it's feeling personal. It's feeling like a small town and that people know you or they at least the friendliness, the small town feel that we've been able to maintain. And, and, and it's, it's a culture that was there before before I came on board as far uh, as far as an elected official in eight years. But really, Sparks has likes to stay off the front page. We don't <laughs> want to be on the front page in the newspaper because most times it's not good news. Sure. I mean, if it was all good, we'd take it. But yeah. a lot of times it's not. And so staying off the front page, uh, taking care of business, 
just uh, being business-friendly, family-friendly. We've recently added age-friendly, so we're an age-friendly community um, that, that is new. Just functioning uh, well for our residents, uh, making it feel like, like they matter, and, and being um, really taking care of their money, too. I mean, uh, that's personally for me, but the city, you know, when, when the recession hit, we cut uh, 30%. Of the wow. city was cut in 2007-2008, uh, budgets were, you know, that recession hit everyone hard. And so we had to take departments and just slash them and, and try to operate the city on, you know, lean and mean, which we did. And we've slowly built back up, but we're not even to those numbers that we had before, trying to provide the services that we need. But being really responsible for me, really... Um, Everyone works too hard for their money, and, and it's my responsibility to make sure we're, um, we're spending it well, that we're responsible, that we're not wasting taxpayer dollars, that we can get, you know, the biggest bang for the buck when, when, we're, when we're deciding on budget. Because people forget, too, or they don't realize, maybe, the city council is our two main jobs, our policy and budget. So we pass the budget every year, which includes capital improvement projects and our annual operating budget. And then we set policy, but we are not the operational side of the city. The city manager is. So the, the type of city government we have is a city manager, strong, um, he does all the operational. He and uh, Neil Kurtz and his staff are the all everything operational. If you call me and you've got an issue, a code enforcement issue or speeding or whatever your, you know, your, your issue is in your neighborhood or in the city, uh, you can go to, and people do, um, I met someone for coffee this morning, I get emails all the time, uh, can reach out to city council and mayor, but we direct it to staff because I can't tell police to go down and take care of something. I can't send code enforcement to check out a violation. Uh, staff does that. It's the operational side of the budget. But obviously going through council and mayor to help us make sure that's taken care of is, is really where our responsibility is, but it is budget, which is number one, and, um, you know, and setting policy by which we operate the city. Right. Wow. Well, it feels to me like a lot of your job is trying to enact the best changes, even on a very small scale, that will ensure a better tomorrow, a better future. And I think that's a perfect way to bring this conversation full circle, because in just what we've covered today in this very short amount of time, you have been a part of history, you've been an active participant in it, and also it's about asking this question about really what is history, because you've also been a part of it in the sense that you are one of the stats in that 2019 figure of the the uh, individuals in the Nevada State Legislature that are women. And so what does it feel like to have been a part of these historical milestones and what do you think is behind a legacy? Because currently in your position with having as much power as you have, albeit, you know, to differing levels, <laughs> um, what, what would you like your legacy to be? Really in addressing uh, the, the thing that's ironic with the legislature in 2019 and 2021 being predominantly female at the same time, in the city of Sparks, I was the only female for five years. Wow. So once Senator Reddy 
um, became Senator Reddy, and she wasn't a councilwoman. Uh, we served two years together, and for the next five years, I was the only female. You know, we had, uh, there's five council members and the mayor, so it was me and the five guys. And it was always interesting because people forgot that. They didn't think about it because Reno was predominantly female. Um, boy, they've had as many as five women, two men. Um, in fact, right now, they have... Um, yeah, they just have two councilmen, and the rest is female. Washoe County Commission uh, has two men and three women, and then the legislature. So, so people are like, "Oh, wow!" You know, it's predominantly female, kind of a given, and they'd forget that I was the only female in the city of Sparks, which, which was was interesting because uh, I, I was raised. I raised two sons. I have four brothers. I was a flight attendant for 42 years, and I work really well with men. But sometimes it was an interesting dilemma to kind of be, you know, the only female there uh, with the rest of the guys. Uh, and, and we are, we get our, our, our council works well together. We are all on the same, you know, same path of what we want to see happen. So there was never conflict, but it was always sometimes interesting as the only woman um, Sometimes, and not necessarily with the council, but people not realizing that, and uh, sometimes looking. I, I looked at things differently, and and I, Senator Reddy, and I are opposite political parties, but work beautifully together because, uh, because our goals were the same, and I think we looked at things a lot the same as as women tend to look at. And and when I looked at the legislature and the impacts of of when when they did become predominantly female, like, like, did that make a difference? And, and, and what, there were some interesting facts I did pick up of things, successes in 2019, because it was predominantly female, things that changed that had not changed before that. One of the big things was um, compensating firefighters for all forms of cancer, including breast cancer, uterine cancer, and ovarian cancer, which had never been covered because firefighters have a higher possibility of cancer related to their jobs, to their exposures, to toxins, and, and, and the cancer settlements for firefighters um, has been recognized and compensated, but they didn't include any of these for the women, and there are women firefighters, and there's an increasing number of women firefighters, and until that legislative session, that was never covered. You know, wow. and they talked about, you know, battles that some women had trying to get breast cancer covered under that same provision, mm -hmm. um, paid leave, including sick leave, you know, so making sure that there was, um, paid leave for, uh, you know, so they, that year, uh, changed the law and required companies with more than 50 employees to provide 40 hours of paid leave, uh, in a year that you could use for yourself or your family. And they really felt like having, women who knew that they wanted companies and they wanted the state to be family friendly was a really important thing uh, for the, and the women made that happen, you know? So it was, it was, it was interesting. Um, sexual assault, domestic violence, harassment, those were all part of Title IX. And so the awareness and laws that change specific to um, sentencing, 
uh, prosecution protections all changed as a result of that being a predominantly female uh, legislature. So, so there was, you know, it did make a difference. It did make a difference. And, and, and we do think, and, and I've always said, I said, it's, it's not a right or wrong. If you're a female or male, it's not, I'm right and you're wrong. Uh, we just have a different perspective, you know, just, just as different as I'm the oldest member of the council to Councilman Abbott, who is our millennial, and mm-hmm. and I'm not right and he's wrong. We come in with different backgrounds, perspectives, and voices that I'm representing women and moms and now grandmothers uh, because that's who I am, just like he is a millennial, is representing the voice of millennials in our community. And I think when we really, the, the core of our job is really for us to be the voice of our residents. And I think, you know, diversity in the council, age and experience and job. And, and I did, uh, and a year and a half ago, uh, Councilwoman Vanderwell was appointed and she's currently running for uh, the council seat in Ward 2. When Mayor Ed Lawson became mayor, uh, he appointed her. So I, I have company now. <laughs> Well, that is wonderful. What an exciting time for inclusion in our local Mm -hmm. community. And it's so great to hear about that. Um, I wanted to transition now to our big three questions that we ask all of our guests to partake in. And you kind of spoke to this earlier in our interview, but I would like to know if there was anything else you'd like to add to this idea of what really sparks you about Sparks? What do you think makes it a unique place to live in, work in, or visit? I think it it really it goes back to that family friendly uh, small town feel, no matter how big we get. So it feels it feels small. It feels like you get to know people pretty quickly. People's roots are deep. They're sparks sparks proud yeah. and sparks deep roots that. Um, even people who've lived in Reno are so funny. They're like, "Well, no, I've lived in Sparks. I'm never moving back to Reno." And they get. You know, roots dug in and just <laughs> love being part of this community because I think of that small town feel uh, makes you feel connected more quickly. Whether you just moved here a year ago or you've been here like me for fifty eight years, so I think that and our business uh, being business friendly uh, really. We hear that all the time from our businesses that do business with the city of Sparks and really trying to. Um, to, to grow the city with businesses, with opportunities, the arts. I'm a huge, uh, I'm like the the voice or the, you know, the real driver of uh, supporting the arts in the city. Uh, so that's been my passion, uh, really working with our art and culture um, advisory commission. And uh, I was at the Art Walk last week and really trying to promote more arts in the city of Sparks and really understanding why that's so important and that the business side of what art brings to the community is, um, is, is, is fiscal. It's an economic impact that people, a business side and the art side are kind of in two different places. And I think Edon has done a, an amazing job. And I was on the Edon board of, of meshing the two so that business understands art and that art understands business and how important they are to each other. So really the increased arts in our community is a special place. And then we have the gem for me, uh, in my ward, is Golden Eagle Regional Park. And it's the largest uh, astroturf, uh, artificial turf installment in the whole country. Wow. Uh, the, the fields, in fact, I was at Starbucks this morning. There are a bunch of teams coming in and out that are having tournaments right now uh, because of the holiday weekend. And 
it promotes, uh, it provides uh, $26 million a year in economic impact to the region from Golden Eagle alone because we have tournaments coming in like now and they're staying in hotels and eating at restaurants and shopping at our stores. And it, uh, if, if people, and it's funny because people who haven't driven out Vista have no clue. And if you just keep driving and then hang a right and you are like, holy cow. I mean, it's, it's impressive. And I encourage people if they haven't been out there to go check it out. And then we use it for local, local teams and sports and there's flat fields. It's not just all softball and baseball. You know, there's all kinds of, you know, soccer and football and lacrosse and other sports going on, but just uh, super family, family friendly and really an economic driver in our community, which is just, like I said, I'm most proud of in my, in my ward. Wow. Well, I have definitely not been over there. So now I'm you need for to. sure going to go. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have a favorite story or moment from Sparks history that you'd like to talk about? Um, this could be either a significant moment in the city's history or even just a favorite personal memory. Um, I, I thought about that. And, and really, uh, pers- personal memories, probably as a kid growing up here, uh, were Bertha and Tina at the Nugget, oh, because I was a little girl, and we, with six kids, we didn't go out often, but we would have, like, Easter Sunday, we'd go to the pancake parlor, and we'd have, you know, we'd have Easter breakfast, uh, but a few times, we were able to go to uh, see the show, and see Bertha and Tina, and then later Angel, and then the Esquaga family, their kids, went to the Catholic school, elementary school, which some people don't even realize was a Catholic elementary on Richard's Way. That's now the Parks and Rec Department oh. and several other, bis- you know, a church, another. It's it's changed hands a lot, but the Rec Building was part of the Immaculate Conception Catholic uh, School, elementary school that then became Holy Cross Catholic School, and the Esquaga kids went. Were a little bit younger than me, but they were there, and we'd have a big springtime um, carnival. And Bertha would come. So they would transport Bertha over to Richard's Way. And we were like the only elementary school that got an elephant. <laughs> elephant at our, uh, at our uh, carnival. So, so fun, fun, fun times. to um, And it just a, a big part of history. And, of course, Bertha and just what a celebrity she became. And UC Davis, you know, when she was having health issues later in life, uh, fell in love with her because she was just she was so special. That's amazing. Yeah, and we'd go, sometimes we'd go when they were giving the, as kids, you know, you'd drive by and, and you knew when the elephants were getting their baths. So you could just park on Nugget Avenue back there and watch Bertha and Tina, you know, play in the water and get bathed by their trainers. So oh, fun memories. And since the Sparks Museum is a museum with a collections archive mm-hmm. and we're presently building a museum library, um, we're looking for stories and memorabilia and archival items all the time about Truckee Meadows history. So what is one thing that you own or that you're aware about that you feel is museum worthy? And, you know, even though you don't have to donate it, we are constantly mm-hmm. looking for items and we'd happily take it from you. <laughs> well, and, and, and thinking about that, I'm like, gosh, what, what item do I have? I'm, uh, there are a couple things. Probably number one would be some um, would be photos of when I was a kid growing up here, and um, I think I have some 
with the with Bertha and Tina, wow. or just old Sparks pictures of me growing up here. Uh, my mom and dad were in Sertoma and La Sertoma, and so they were the big community service organizations here in the city of Sparks. Uh, very active and. Um, Lots of people involved, including Judge Lamberti, Jack Lamberti, who was our Justice of the Peace, whose office is where the museum is right now. Yes. So the, his office was there. And then my memories of that building, it's funny because when I'm down at the museum, when I go upstairs to your cultural center, I always call it the library. Because yes. when I was a little girl, that's another really fond memory. Um, myself and my best friend, Marsha Mendive, whose dad is... Lou Mendive from Mendive Middle School, uh, we would walk all the way down Pyramid Way to York, almost to, almost to McCarran, where McCarran wasn't there. And every and we would walk all the way down to that old library uh, for the summer reading program and carry stacks of books and stop all along the way in the heat uh, <laughs> and go home and, and read books. So that, uh, that was the library that I grew up with. Uh, and to see that, how beautiful that cultural center is and the hardwood floors. But I, every time I walk in, it just, it, it brings back all those memories of being a little girl reading, reading books. Um, and I don't know, I'll have to look through. I read every Nancy Drew mystery. And, and I'm trying to think if I have any of those books still. But it might be, it might be a book from my childhood or photographs just of growing up here in Sparks uh, as a kid because I've got lots of memories, uh, you know, in the years since I've had my boys who are 37 and 34. So raising children here and, and all my activities, but really kind of my memories of, of, of Sparks and how small, how small it was and how, you know, riding horses at Diefendorfer Stables, which is McCarran now, uh, Reed High School was so far out. The Y, the Sparks YMCA, my dad was on that board. And when they built it, it was like, what are they putting a YMCA way out there? And of course, it's bearing before you get to Reed High School. So so just seeing how big the, the town has become from my childhood, for sure. But even in the time since my boy, I had my sons, the number of schools that have opened, the housing, uh, just the changes of the city uh, have been you know, have, have been, it's, it's just been kind of, it, it is, you forget that you're part of history when I can look back that many years and, and reflect upon, you know, what it was like when I was a kid riding my bike to school or walking to the library, uh, to raising my own children to now, you know, as a, as a, a senior citizen and, uh, and grandmother to look at where the city has come, but to still just feel that that special, what a special place it is uh, to, to grow up in, to raise my family in. And my husband and I both retired, although I'm not because of council, but retire, retired from our main jobs uh, and seeing, you know, how much we've seen in our, in our lifetimes is pretty, pretty special memories. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing those memories with us here You're today. Welcome. This You're has welcome. been an excellent conversation and good luck in the election. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to give everybody a break for the summer because after we weren't, I wasn't in the primary ballot, but uh, people are kind of ready for a little bit of a break, summertime vacationing and families. So, so I'm going to gear things up in August and uh, you will see my green signs, which is to honor my Irish grandmother and the city of Sparks is green. So green is my signature. Obviously, I mean, obviously oh. I'm, yeah, you'll always see the green and my green Converse tennis shoes. So I'll be out there <laughs> on the campaign trail, knocking on doors and meeting people that, you know, I haven't met and working hard because uh, that's how I was raised. You know, 
you don't, you're not handed anything. You've got to work hard uh, to earn it. So, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being thank here you. with us today. Thank you. This has been fun. The Sparks Museum podcast is funded in part by a grant from the Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It is produced and recorded at the podcast recording studio at Sparks' own AntSpace co-working entrepreneurial hub, a place for entrepreneurs made by entrepreneurs. We really want to get the word out about our brand new audio series, so please spread the word about our new podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and share this episode. Do you have a favorite story of Sparks that you want to hear on the podcast? Email info at sparksmuseum.org to share any recommendations. We would love to hear from you. We also invite you to visit the Sparks Heritage Museum on 814 Victorian Avenue. The museum is open Tuesdays through Saturdays, from 11 to 4 Tuesdays through Fridays, and 1 to 4 on Saturdays. Please come visit and be a part of our ongoing efforts to tell the Sparks story. We'll see you next time.